Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and even in some cases offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there is very adult content ahead, and you have been warned. Welcome, my heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. As always, I am your delightful host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, relax, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we're continuing our foray into the most ghostly of places to visit on your summer vacation. And I know last week I gave you a little bit of international flair, but this week, well, we're going to be bringing it back home. Why, you ask? Because I said so. No, I'm just kidding. Well, because the summer is almost over, so any trip has to be close and quick. So we're going to have to bring it back to the States for most of us. But before we get into all of that, we will be playing our drinking game as always. Please remember that the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. Because I'm such a loser. I know. Whatever. And since today's episode is dedicated to the great Northwest, any drink associated with Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, whatever, is going to be appropriate. And if you're anything like me, well, I'm thinking Seattle circa 1998. So grunge, nirvana, and flannel, flannel, flannel. (laughs) Alrighty, now for the game part. Every time I say mansion that's gonna be a single shot and every time i say oregon that'll be a double shot all right now that we have our business end out of the way we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma and today's story is of the very famous and very very haunted piddock mansion so let's hit it my heathens Henry Piddock was a London-born newspaper publisher, and his lovely wife, Georgiana, met and married in Portland in 1860. Henry went on to become one of the wealthiest men in Oregon society, investing in a variety of industries, including railroads, banking, ranching, and mining. In addition, he was also an avid climber and outdoorsman, I'm thinking he might have been the first one that found Bigfoot. All right, maybe not. Anyways, he helped to found the Mazamas Climbing Club and became part of the first expedition to climb Mount Hood. Now, Georgiana, well, she didn't rest on her laurels either. She was also an active member of society, becoming involved in many cultural organizations and charities, including the Women's Union and the Ladies' Relief Society. She helped to found the Martha Washington Home, a residence for working women. 
She was also an enthusiastic gardener and was a founding member of the Portland Rose Society and the Portland Rose Festival. In 1909, the Pittocks decided that they wanted to build a home in Portland for them to retire in. They hired architect Edward T. Folks to design the Piddock Mansion from scratch. The 46-room mansion was built on a hill overlooking Portland with a French Renaissance exterior. The inside was also uniquely designed with oak-paneled cabinets, marble floors, a huge central staircase, modern amenities like an elevator and a dumbwaiter, and the most strikingly beautiful views of Mount Hood and the Cascade Mountain Range. Foil lines the inside of the entryway ceiling, a nod to Georgiana's frugal early years when she had to save foil from old tea containers. The Piddock Mansion was completed in 1914 when Georgiana was 68 years old and Henry was 80. Sadly, the couple didn't have many years left together to enjoy the home that they had built. In fact, Georgiana passed away in 1918, just four years after construction was completed, and Henry, well, he died the following year. Members of the Piddock family remained in the home for many years until their grandson, Peter Gattenbean, who had grown up in the house, attempted to sell it in 1958. Gattenbean was unable to sell it, and the house sat empty for several years. It was severely damaged as a result of the massive Columbus Day storm of 1962, and Gattenbean contemplated having the mansion destroyed altogether. However, the community rallied around the famous site, and Portland residents donated $75,000 to help the city purchase and restore the wonderful home. The city of Portland officially bought the Piddock Mansion in 1964, and a nonprofit was quickly formed to take responsibility for the upkeep of the house. They spent just over a year repairing and restoring the mansion to its former glory. And in 1965, it reopened as the Piddock Mansion Museum, which is open daily to the public for touring. Now, because the Piddocks died before they could really get a chance to use the home that they had designed, it's believed that their spirits still hang around the mansion. In fact, many strange occurrences have been reported in the house. In fact, visitors to the house have reported seeing windows shutting and latching on their own, the sounds of heavy footsteps, and a portrait of Henry Piddock moving around the house. Tour guides have even reported encountering figures when they open the mansion for business in the mornings. Some people even say that they have smelled the unmistakable scent of roses, Georgiana's favorite flower. Apparitions of the couple, as well as the head's groundkeeper, have been seen and felt following visitors as they toured the mansion. All the reports seem to indicate the ghosts are far from malicious, rather they get the sense that the ghosts are, well, peaceful and happy to be showing guests around their beautifully restored home. In fact, the ghosts are friendly and gracious hosts. It seems that, although they were not alive long enough to enjoy the home they'd built, the Piddock spirits still remain in their home, welcoming guests and enjoying the beautiful views. 
And of course, the 22-room French Chateau in the hills overlooks downtown Portland and was the site of actually only two deaths. Original residents Georgiana in 1918 at the age of 72 and Henry Pittock in 1919 at the age of 84. Now, there was one political scandal where Pittock was able to get a water line installed to the mansion at the city's expense, despite the property being outside the city limits. But since being opened to the public in 1965, it's been host to a number of ghost sightings, including floating old ladies, boots walking without any legs, portraits moving of their own accord, windows opening and shutting themselves, and, perhaps most improbably, a tree with a face in it. Now, if you're wondering, the mansion was also where the 1982 slasher film Unhinged and 1993's Madonna Answers to Sharon Stone's Basic Instinct clunker Body of Evidence was filmed. And historic Piddock Mansion is 16,000 square foot building that overlooks beautiful Portland. Local craftsmen built it in almost entirely of materials made from regional sources. And architect Edward D. Folks did design it. And per- perhaps because he had never designed such a large home before, Folks wasn't a prisoner of a standard design. In fact, His plans incorporated an interesting mix of square stone walls with a circular interior. Rooms were built off of a grand central staircase, kind of like spokes from a wheel. In fact, the house incorporates many of the most modern features. There was a dumbwaiter to raise food to the upstairs bedrooms. The house was designed so that morning airflow acted to cool the house without fans in the summer. Instead of bells to call servants from anywhere in the house, the Pidex had an internal phone system installed. There's also a central vacuum system that runs throughout the house. And according to legend, the vacuum was so powerful that if it were used when the windows were closed, the air pressure change would be so strong that windows would implode. Yeah, so there was a kind of a few homey touches. And Georgiana Piddock made use of her her frugal pioneer upbringing in that house. For many years, she had saved the silver foil that her tea had come wrapped in. And when the house was built, she had the foil used to paper the vaulted ceiling of the entryway of the house. In fact, the house was really the culmination of the life and work of the Piddocks. In fact... The Piddocks stood apart from many of their peers in a time when most of the rising rich of the Pacific Northwest were, well, visionary despots. I hate to call them that. I mean, I don't mean any disrespect to these people or those who admire their accomplishments. In fact, without the dedication and work and, yes, the vision of progress that they had, we would not have the benefits that we enjoy today. But at the same time, the men and women who undertook the development of the Pacific Northwest could be a little short-sighted and ruthless in accomplishing their goals. They were in part a product of their time, which was very much different than the times that we live in today. In fact, Henry Piddock was instrumental in bringing modernization to many industries in the Pacific Northwest. He helped found that climbing club and was part of the first expedition to climb Mount Hood. He frequently led the Rose Parade, and the house was not completed until they had been married for a full 58 years. 
After the sandstone mansion was completed, the Pittocks and some of their descendants moved in together. Georgiana lived a full four years in the house until her death, and Henry only survived her by one year. And, of course, it was restored by the city of Portland in 1964 through public and donated funds and labor. And, of course, since the house has been opened, there have been some strange happenings throughout the mansion. That boyhood picture of Henry Pittock seems to move of its own volition. And you never know where you're going to find it. It's usually kept on a bedroom mantle, but it'll move to different locations in only minutes after it was last seen. And the tour guides can be reticent about these happenings. One did admit that one morning she entered the mansion and saw a figure standing in, in one of the ground floor rooms. And as she turned the lights on, only to find it was a new mannequin display. Perhaps that's why they're hesitant to talk about their own experiences. But visitors come forward with their own stories. In fact, some visitors report the strong smell of roses when there's absolutely none in the house. Other people have reported the sound of heavy boots walking in or out of the rear entrance. And a woman was looking at the picture display in the basement level when she felt something. She turned and saw the figure of an elderly woman standing next to her. And the woman vanished before her eyes. And a group of native Hawaiians had taken the tour. And as they left, one of the young Hawaiians remarked, my uncle is a shaman in Hawaii, and he says that he can feel the spirits of the Pidocks here, and they are very happy. And that's a wonderful thing to say, to know that ghosts are happy with their home. But now we're going to talk about some lingering spirits, well, that may not be as happy as the Pidock Mansion ghosts. And one cannot really talk about Portland and not talk about the Portland-Shanghai Tunnels. And it is one of the best opportunities to learn about the illegal practice of shanghaiing in the American West. If you ever heard Portland referred to as the Forbidden City of the West and wondered why, well, a visit to the Shanghai Tunnels could possibly clear things up for you. Then again, it could just raise more questions about a legend that's persisted for over 150 years. Now, if you're not familiar with the term shanghaiing, well, it refers to the capture and illegal sale of able-bodied men and women to sea captains who were in need of crewmen. Unscrupulous, to say the least, middlemen would kidnap men and sell them off to captains for as little as $50 a head. These poor men were then forced to work on ships bound for the Orient with no pay. According to legend, as well as some historical data, men were shanghaied in Portland from roughly 1850 up until 1941. But the practice was supposedly at its worst during the Prohibition era. And it sounds a little bizarre and horrific to be just a little more than a myth or a legend, but actually, shanghaiing really did take place. It was a practice that occurred in Portland as well as many other locations along the West Coast. What is questioned is the means by which it was carried out in Portland and the relationship, if any, between the Portland Underground and Shanghai practices. The Shanghai Tunnels, or Portland Underground, consists of tunnel passages linking Portland's Old Town, or Chinatown, to the central downtown area of Portland. The basements of many downtown bars and hotels were linked to the Willamette River waterfront through the tunnels, allowing supplies to be moved from ships docked there directly to basements for storage. Although 
many residents used to doubt it was true, the catacombs snaking beneath the city, in fact, do exist. Since the mid-19th century, stories have been told about Shanghai practices in Portland. Both men and women were warned to take care against being drugged or kidnapped and hauled off for sale. Women, of course, were allegedly Shanghai'd for use as prostitutes rather than ship's laborers, although other ports along the West Coast, including San Francisco, are said to have been centers of Shanghai activity. Portland's underground tunnels are claimed to have made the practice much more manageable and widespread than in other areas. According to these theories, victims were drugged, kidnapped while intoxicated, or simply knocked out, then dropped and dragged into the tunnels through trapdoors called deadfalls. Once in the tunnels, they were locked in specially designed prison cells and held captive until they were shipped off as slave labor. During Prohibition, it is said that bars moved their operations underground as well, making it even easier than ever for unsuspecting victims to be shanghaied. Some researchers estimate that as many as 1,500 people a year were shanghaied through Portland's underground. The catacombs beneath Portland do exist, and the stories almost sound plausible, but is the legend true? What evidence exists to support the allegations that these tunnels were used for shanghaiing? In fact, is there any evidence at all? Well, you can take a tour aimed at demonstrating the validity of the Shanghai legend and decide for yourself. But so far, the evidence does appear to be scanty, to say the least. You can imagine that what is there could have been created any time rather than during the 19th century. The persistent oral history of the legend is somewhat convincing, but remember, historians don't doubt Shanghaiing took place in the port cities of the West, including Portland. What they doubt is the connection between the tunnels, the basements of hotels and bars, and the kidnapping. There is no historical record or evidence of Shanghaiing being practiced in the tunnels from the time period that it's said to have taken place. In fact, the earliest mention of a connection between the practice of Shanghaiing and the tunnels dates from the 1970s. Historians assert that even in the event of a massive cover-up effort, it's unlikely that there would be no evidence of the practice whatsoever from the era when it was supposedly at its peak. Being able to explore the legend and form your own opinion is of course what makes the Shanghai Tunnel so appealing. If proof finally does come out confirming the story, it's doubtful it will make the legend any more or less interesting than it already is. One question that will probably come to mind on your visit to Portland's tunnels may haunt you more than what you believe you see. If history already confirms that Shanghai took place in Portland, why on earth wouldn't the tunnels have been used as a means of transporting the kidnapped? Or better yet, if the tunnels weren't used for Shanghaiing, then what exactly were they used for? Whew. Well, that's a question that could keep you up all night. Good thing that we've had a good dose of alcohol to help knock us out. And just make sure you don't end up shanghaied. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of today's episode. And I do thank you for joining me today. I hope that you'll take the time to reach out to me and let me know what you think. And you can always reach the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you have any suggestions for future shows or you just want to tell me what you think, 
drop me a line. I do respond to every email. And on that note, that's all the time that we have for today, my darlings. Thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. I shall see you next time, my heathens. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.